Welcome to a special rugby edition of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Sam Portland, Tom Farrow and Dan Howells. Hi guys, welcome to episode 31 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got a special edition of the podcast again. So on the back of a really successful episode with the football edition, which featured Nick Grantham, Ross Burberry and Nathan Winder, I've got three guys who are going to speak about everything to do with rugby. So we've got Tom Farrow from Wasps, we've got Sam Portland from Wasps and we've got... Um, Dan Howells, who is involved with the England Rugby Sevens. So it's a really good chat with these guys. We discussed loads of different topics. All the topics came from questions that got put to me on Twitter after I put a little request out for the kind of things people wanted to hear. So we'll go through all them. So thank you to the guys who took the time to send the questions over. I really appreciate that. Just before we get onto the podcast, just like to tell you that you can keep up to date with everything that's going on the podcast and get hold of all the older episodes at paceyperformance.co.uk you can also subscribe on itunes and youtube and uh, after a little request via the website i've put all episodes on stitcher now so you can get hold of that if you're on android or you listen or on your iphone via stitcher just like to say again big thank you to the guys that put the questions uh, on twitter and here is the special edition with tom farrow sam portland and dan howells Okay, hi guys, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, off the back of the roundtable special edition of the podcast with the football guys, um, decided to go again with some rugby guys. So we've got Sam Portland, Dan Howells and Tom Farrow on the line. So just before we get them to get a, a bit of an introduction to themselves, just like to say thanks a lot for giving me time on a, on a Wednesday night to come on the podcast. Um, so I'll hand over to Sam just to give us a bit of an introduction um, on himself, his background and things, uh, and then we'll get cracking with the questions. So welcome, Sam. Hey, thanks for having me. Not so um, I'm a strength and conditioning coach at Wasps, uh, manage the GPS and work with uh, rehabilitating athletes. Uh, been there, it's my third year now. Started as an intern, worked my way through, uh, off the back of doing uh, an undergrad degree in human performance at Brunel. Uh, and now just continuing education through a master's at St Mary's. Cool. Dan? Yeah, I'm an SSC coach uh, currently at the RFU, the Rugby Football Union, working with England Sevens. I've been there for 18 months now and previously was at Wasps myself. Um, that's how I know Sam and, and Tom and was there for two seasons uh, leading that programme there. Cool. Last but not least. Uh, yeah, hi guys, thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, I'm currently working with Wasp also in the academy as a strength and conditioning coach. Um, I joined as an intern also straight from uh, uni at um, St Mary's on the SEC undergrad there. Um, worked my way through uh, from junior to senior of the first team. Um, left the first team at the end of pre-season this year and then carried on working with the academy in a part-time role, uh, which is what I'm currently doing now. Just a question, is there any ex, uh, ex-staff at Wasps or current staff at Wasps that I, I haven't spoke to yet? Because if there is, yeah. I need to get the number. Um, 
So this is the first time I've kind of put it out on on Twitter and gone solely off the guys that have responded. So um, just go with firstly one of the questions that was stuck up there, um, and I'll aim this aim this at Dan. So how would you periodize uh, between legs of series, and how does this differ from out of competition? Feel free to chime in, everyone else. By the way. Yeah, for, for me personally, in the in the position I have at the moment, it's quite unique, um, very different from say a Premiership team because in that scenario you you're going to be preparing week in week out, and the focus might be a little bit more on recovery, especially towards the end of the week and uh, ensuring guys are ready for competition. With us, we have anything from eight weeks between legs down to three and a half weeks between legs, um, and actually it, it reflects. Mini, mini pre-season, pre-season periods, really. So actually, I can put boys in a, a lot more stress in those in those time periods. So in terms of periodization, I'll end up preparing the guys early on in the season when we've got big windows between competition. I, I won't be afraid to push the guys quite hard, um, look to overreach them slightly, um, whereas towards the tail end of the year, we'll be looking a little bit more at maintenance and, and retention of uh, the qualities that we've developed throughout the year. Um, we don't really get a break between World Series and European competitions, so there isn't a pre-season without competition as such. Um, so what we do is we focus on the periods between competition as um, another opportunity to develop physical qualities in the guys, um, and that's the big difference from what I've noticed in 15 week-to-week games versus this scenario, is that there's a lot more time you can focus on getting the guys in uh, peak physical condition and actually focusing on individual quality development, um, which you don't often see in, the, in a premiership club, so to speak, because a lot of the time you're patching up guys uh, and getting them ready for the game that could be just five days later. So there's a big difference in that scenario. Um, so how does that differ from you two guys? Uh, yeah, so for me in the academy, it's a, a different challenge again um, from what I was used to with the... Um, to full, full-time first-team guys is that some of these uh, school kids are playing two games a week. Uh, they actually undergo massive amounts of volume, so you've got to be quite careful how you push them. But obviously, as they're young, still looking to develop um, the qualities as, as they grow. So um program they're following now, I get contact with them at least once a week um, on a Monday night, and then we'll send out a program for them that they are expected to do at school as well. Um, but then some of them might have extra SNC with their schools on top of that, and it varies from school to school. So it's a it's a difficult situation to manage. But the the program they're following is like standard sort of complex powder setup. In um, they have you know try to hit as many variables as we possibly can to and assuming they're lower end athletes, they don't need as much stress to improve. So yeah, the the guys that um, in the academy aren't full time. Is this the this is the junior academy? Junior okay. academy. My work with the senior academy is just as a contact coach. Um, Ryan Hicks runs the program for the senior academy. Okay. What about you, Sam? Um, it's quite interesting, especially working with the guys that you're rehabilitating, because you could have guys that actually have an injury to lower body, or um, or just a, a short knock. So you could have someone that you could turn around in 14 days where you kind of want to keep the stimulus as you would do, like Dan was saying, trying to get them recovered and just nursing and patching them up. 
Whereas you could have an extended period of time as someone could rupture a bicep or tear a pec where then you have quite a lot of free reign. It's sort of a pre-season period where you can really target them individually and hit all the hit all the right areas that you need to really strip them right back and then work on their robustness and build the base to hit the peak of the pyramid for when they um, get back. Cool. So I'll, I'll come back to you, Sam, for, um, for the next one, which was about GPS. So how long have you been working, guys, working with GPS and how, you know, the, the three top metrics that you look for and how that's kind of fed back to coaches to inform inform what actually goes on the pitch? Well, in, in the grand scheme of things, I've probably been working with GPS for about 18 months. Uh, Tom actually introduced me to uh, the system at WASPs um, and now I've uh, just sort of continued it on from there. We've, we've taken on a new uh, system this year uh, working with Catapult, uh, which has been quite interesting setting up. Um, and in terms of three key metrics, it really, in, in a general sense, you kind of want to see the volume covered, how fast they've run, and some indication of work rate. But then it really, I'm sure the guys will agree with me, and it, it really depends on the outcome of your session and, and what you want to try to achieve with it, which is where you have a real benefit of, of real timing. So you, you have um, what is termed as like higher speed running um, when you're looking at set global bands which are same speed zones that apply across the board to every position, um, which you could see uh, an increase. So you want to see guys running over four and a half, five meters per second for extended periods of time. Um, or what I would personally prefer is working off percentage max um, for training. So obviously a, a prop forward 10 meter sprint is not going to be the same um, as a winger's. So there you can really individualize and actually generate a good cost of the session, which you could report back to the coach. Mm-hmm. So, go on, Dan, were you going to say something then? Yeah, I was just going to chip in, actually. You know, I think from having seen quite a few different coaches now, I think it does come down to who you're working with culturally and what their, their um, buy-in is to something like GPS. Uh, you don't want to be kept taking numbers and collecting numbers just for the sake of it. So I think first and foremost, it's really important to link it back to uh, the integration with the coach. And a lot of it comes from the relationship the person that is, is driving the conditioning has with the, essence, uh, with the uh, rugby coach or the director of rugby. Um, do they believe in it? Do they believe in its use? And if they do, what are the, what are the key metrics that that individual as a coach will understand? So first and foremost, if, if you're trying to drive intensity in a rugby session, in a global zone or a, a global sense, uh, you're going to be using probably a little bit more of the absolute zones to give a reflection of the type of intensity that the rugby sessions are creating. Is it too much? Is it too, li- too little? And keeping it simple. So it might be something as simple as metres per minute and total volume that the coach can relate to. And linking that back to, to games then and how close was that stimulus to a game, the game demands. I think uh, Tom did some great work at Wasp when we were there in terms of not looking at averages, but looking at our worst case scenarios. You know, what do we have to endure across the board? We may play 26 games in a Premiership across a year, but 
actually what are the worst case scenarios so that we're preparing for our toughest demands, not our average demands. So we're always trying to relate back our session information to those worst case demands in terms of meets per minute. And um, we actually used a lot of heart rate data as well. Ambiguous in some senses for some people, but it was a really simple way of going, well, how often are we in the red zone? How often are we, uh, you know, being high demands of, uh, of the game basically in our rugby session so that, that's the first thing and then second thing it comes back to personally is the individuals as players are you monitoring them as individuals to use with, with GPS and I've had close links with physios and it's become really valuable especially when rehabbing players and making sure they're graduated and they return to, to training and that's where I found it most useful and of late it's not necessarily the key metrics it's the the change over time in those metrics. So what is a normal individual's um, stress in training? You've got Because we've got players in every team that go above and beyond, and we've got players that probably do not enough. Uh, but what is their average, and, and how far from that average are they deviating in certain sessions? So are they falling out the side, a standard deviation of their typical training stress over the course of three or four, four weeks, and using that as a red flag to suggest about, well, you need to keep an eye on this guy. He's done 110 acceleration and decelerations in this session, and that's 20 to 30 percent more than he has done over the last three or four weeks. So I think you've got two extremes there of how you can use GPS. I think it's important to know when you're using each type and when you're using each uh, metric as well, and what the uh, purpose of each metric is. You've got a big build-up, Tom. There. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty much Dan said it all there. It's really important to know that where you need to use your absolutes and where you need to use your relatives um, in terms of like understanding what is going on in the game. Um, if you were to look at, say, the, the top international level, then you want to understand absolutes of the what's going on. But then in terms of monitoring day-to-day -day with players, it's really important that you look at relatives because, as Sam said as well, the, the, um, the max speed of a prop is going to be very different from the max speed of a winger. Um, in terms of, and the rehab process as well, it's very valuable. I found in um, doing some of the rehab with um, Tom Vardell, we did a lot of stuff around his speed. It was really useful in all of his sessions to keep an eye on what speeds he was hitting as he was coming back to full fitness. So we were able to actually make him faster than before he was injured, um, leading back into uh, his his rugby training. So. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a growing tool and there's lots of use to it, but it's uh, there's a lot of way to go, I think, with it as well in that a lot of the studies looking at reliability can see a lot of variation in um, volumes, but also the accelerometers especially. So I think you have to be a little bit sceptical to how much you look into the um, the data coming from, from those when you're looking at your training uh, feedback. So with so much, obviously, collecting so much data, how are you feeding that back to coaches? Sorry, what was that? I lost you there. Sorry, mate. Um, with so much data being collected, how are you feeding that back to coaches to actually inform uh, decision-making, you know, for, for next week, next day, next session? Yeah, as, as Dan said, that was really important, how the coach, what the coach can take from it. Otherwise, there's no use at all. So you have to make sure you're presenting it in a, a simple enough form that it, they're, they're going to take something away from it. There's no point throwing thousands of numbers in their face and expecting them to deal with that because they haven't got time and they're not interested in that. So um, we looked at things. We were fortunate enough when um, Dan was at WASP, there was five of us. Um, so 
myself and Connor Brown, who was um, same position at me there at the time, was um, we was able to split the DPS between us. So we got to looking quite detailed in terms of the effect of separate drills and what meters per minute they were hitting and um, heart rate effects and all sorts of stuff. So we were able to then feed that a little bit back to the coach to say that this drill, so when you're attacking from amber zone, um, from a line out, you're going to hit roughly 130 meters per minute if you're playing for two to three minutes. So we know then that how to raise the intensity of training so then you don't have to rely so much on top-up conditioning during the season. And you can actually then get a, uh, a physical improvement from training sessions, which is ideal when you're limited with time. But when we were there, we'd always, we'd always give a summary at the end of the week, uh, post-game, and it included everything from wellness to uh, GPS loads to um, minutes trained total in the week, uh, missed minutes if people had niggles and injuries. But we'd all, personally, when I'd be writing that to the coach, the dialogue I'd have is to try and relate that back to the game. You know, so say if we'd only hit, say, 12 to 13 minutes of red zone heart rate, which is 85% or above, then you'd be explaining that in terms of that's only 40 to 50% of what you endure in an average game, let alone a worst-case scenario game. So when you put it in that dialogue and relate it back to game intensity, which is essentially what the coach understands, they've been there and done it, um, that's a lot more powerful than just numbers and isolated metrics on their own. I think you do have to um, exhibit them and illustrate them relevant to something that the coach would have a heartfelt um, link with, something they've experienced before. Cool. Um, so I think the next one, I put on Twitter that um, Kay was going to come on, but he cuts off. <laughs> Bailed. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a, uh, he's got something going on. No, he's, he's somewhere, on, somewhere on his internet, so he can't make it. But this, what I think this was aimed at him, um, but we'll stick it out there anyway. Um, so he'd, I, I think he'd written a, a blog or something about burning the speed ladders. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what's your opinion on speed ladders? Should they be burned or do they have a place? Depends what you're looking at. Go. I was, in a general sense, for developing pure speed in terms of how fast that you run, I don't think it has a place. Um, but you could use, it could be used as a useful tool as part of an early stage rehab implementation uh just developing you know one way of just developing um <clears throat> helping the motor training and all the the motor programming that goes along with such a like an ankle sprain or returning from an acl um like anything there are more than one way to to skin a cat but i think that's the only place that i would even entertain the idea of using it yeah, I think the, the best way of describing it for me is that you look at the movements that go through speed ladders. Uh, the fact they're called speed ladders to start with is is the problem. <laughs> um, and you, you see all the SAQ, the, 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 the old school stuff that went through it, is that this will make you faster. And it's a, it's a flexion dominant exercise when guys are going through with high knees. Um, and they're talking about hot feet and uh, hot coals through the ladder and stuff. And it's like, well, there's no force production and acceleration speed is a extension-based movement to start with to generate acceleration. And it, it's for me, it's actually 
doing the opposite. You know, you, you're creating a flexion movement. Um, so in terms of speed, definitely not. In terms of coordination, patterns, um, reactive foot skills, if you use it in the right way, then I think it has a place, but it's definitely not used in terms of improving speed. From, from my perspective, I think you've got a, a use for it in some qualities that link in to change the direction, um, especially in returning players from lower limb injury. Um, but yes, definitely not a speed tool, um, but I wouldn't go as far to say that I'd actually burn it myself. So uh, I think it has a place. There's one deep in, inside the sheds uh, where I work, but it's used in very specific situations uh, and it's not in our speed sessions. Tom, would you use it with young, young, your younger guys? No, definitely not for speed. Uh, maybe like the guy said, you could use it for some, I don't know, calf conditioning or part of the warm-up. We used to bring them out every now and again just to give them something to look at. Yeah. But um, in terms of, yeah, in terms of speed mechanics, or it's not necessarily going to help. And I mean, in terms of coaching specific mechanics and movement, in general, that's there's a lot of debate around that, and how can you, you know, tell someone exactly how to move? Everyone's very different. So when you then take that to the extreme of making people put a foot in defined boxes and all different shapes and sizes, you're not going to get not going to get too much back from that. Cool. So I'll come back to you, Tom, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. Another question with regards to squatting in season. Yeah. Is, is this something you're doing, something you're not doing, something you're working around? Yeah, no, we've, we've always done it. Um, you obviously, you have to be considerate of any exercise you do in terms of an injury risk and your prime role is to keep them from getting injured before anything else. So you have to consider that and certain individuals we wouldn't squat um, just based on their ability to move or to perform the movement or previous injury history. Um, so it's individual specific, but if uh, guys can tolerate it, then we we did it and we had no issues with those guys. Um, I think it can that leads to an important debate in itself around uh, building capacity rather than just trying to uh, keep them away from everything they're doing in game. So I think there's a lot of, for me. Um, I find interesting the off feet idea in rugby. Something I've been thinking about a lot at the moment is this idea that we have to take them off feet. Uh, um, any any possibility any possibility to to save them, but ideally what we need to be doing is building their capacity. And when you look at the capacity of in other sports to spend on their feet, then um, they can they can tolerate pretty high load. So we should be looking at how we can build players' capacity to tolerate the loads of a training week and a game uh, before we start trying to pull them away from stuff. So squatting would be part of that for me. Dan, Sam, same. Yeah, I mean, I've I've uh, I've got my guys squatting throughout the year. I think it, it has a place at certain times of the year in terms of being at the forefront of the program, uh, and then other times of the year it will it will sit back slightly. Um, you have certain people you have to uh, work with in a different way because they're slightly compromised actually in terms of the load they can take or previous injury history. But essentially, it's. You, largely used in, in terms of senior athletes in terms of neuromuscular overload so um, if you can't use it then you just need to find another significant um, exercise that can load them in, in a similar capacity in terms of neuromuscular overload so um, for me it's not the holy grail that, that some people talk about in terms of you must squat but um, I've had great gains in terms of strength gains from other exercises numerous other exercises but um, it is a staple in the program. If we've got guys that can squat, they will squat. 
but um, with the greater good in mind, you know, these are guys are rugby players after all. That's the priority. The guys need to be on the field. So if there's any risk that um, a certain exercise selection will ha- have on a player, then then obviously we'll choose wisely to make sure that they're on the field as much as possible. Just back I think that's a good point. Go Sorry, no, you go. Yeah, I think it's a really good point that can often be quite missed. Is is that you sort of return your return back to the basics and actually qualify your athlete or qualify your rugby player? Um, I'm sure you know. You look at some of the best rugby players, best footballers. They're not the best athletes. Um, so you know, actually, like revisiting. Go right back to to the early days. Is it is your athlete ready to tolerate that load as well? Does he need? Does he have a serious knee valgus issue or anything? And do you actually have to piece the the layer the piece of the puzzle back together to even get them to the point of squatting? And then that's where the different um, elements of the neuromuscular stimulation and and all those things come in. You just got to be smart about what you do. And definitely in the same um, what the boys have said is developing the capacity to tolerate the load um, and and also it's just definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach. So what I'm going to say to Dan, so you said, mentioned about um, kind of cycling it as, you know, sometimes yeah. at the forefront of your programme, sometimes it, it kind of falls yeah. back a little bit. Yeah. Do you just want to tell us the, the kind of context behind why you do that and when you do it? Yeah, so I think we've got something like an eight-week period between competitions. That's a really good period for me to to put the guys through some squat patterns and um, periodise their weeks, you know, going through like maybe a medium to high week, bit of a deload week and then a very high week, and then repeating that on an eight-week total, so doing two four-week blocks. But when we get to the end of the the year and we've got three and a half weeks, um, and they've also been haven't been loading for two and a half to three weeks in terms of heavy heavy loads because they've been playing and, and regenerating as such. Then I'll look to do things that are clo- more closely correlated with single leg strength. So at the moment, we're on a short turnaround. The guys are doing four sets of four heavy, heavy step-ups um, instead of, of squat patterns. But at other parts of their program, they've got some conditioning elements which are squat-based. So it might be goblet squats, uh, might be some... Um, uh, trap bar related work in terms of lower load, higher volume. So there's the squat pattern as such, but it's it's sitting at the back in terms of conditioning tool, and we're getting the overload from from a, a single leg bias instead at the moment. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So next one, um, you go to power exercises in season. I'll open that up and just see who catches it. Come on, Tommy. Um, yeah, again, like it's, it's varied. Depends on the individual. Depends on the time of season. Um, whether you want more strength speed bias, uh, bias or speed strength bias. So, um, I, I think simple ones for me are like jumping exercises of and then various loads. So you vary the load based on what what end of the spectrum you're trying to develop. Um, I've never been a big fan of Olympic lifting. Um, in that most people can't do it very well. I think if you can do it very well. Um, then that's great. It's a great exercise. It's got lots of use. But um, in terms of most rugby players and um, even the younger players, having the time to actually coach that to them is taking away time from actually developing a quality. Um, so Olympic lifting is a sport in itself and a skill in itself. And I think it takes quite a long time, quite a lot of specified practice to get really good at, good at it where you're going to take something away from it. So yeah, I like jump squats, 
you know jumps of different variations um but I would, again it's, it's very individualized and based on where you are and whether you use single or double leg is, is again based on where you are so in terms of development we try to cover as many sort of patterns in terms of jumping landing single leg double leg throughout the the academy as they progress through um just to expose them to that so they as from a skill standpoint they're able to perform those exercises when they get to higher levels of the program so do you expose the younger ones to any olympic lifting derivatives at all no i don't so i i've usually got large groups of um athletes on a monday night could be 30 or more athletes in a room at one time and um, coach, I mean, I could. Uh, there's no reason why I couldn't like sort of spend 15 to 20 minutes with a broomstick with the whole group going through that. But that would be taken away from time where I could actually develop their power, actually develop their speed or strength. So um, we we always involve some some like jumping exercises within the program. Um, but it's looking to develop their their um, those capacities at that age. Another thing is I think. Um, I think it's really important to expose younger athletes to jumps and speed early on and not just build around a base of, of basic strength movements because I think you have to provide the, the stimulus, provide the challenge for the body to adapt to and then it will adapt rather than some of the classic um, youth models of you know slowly progressing them through um, basic you know, like body weight exercises to then gym, then speed, then um, power, power and speed. I think you have to expose them to speed and power early on so their body knows how to adapt to that. Everyone else, go-to power exercises? Yeah, I think I'm a little bit different to Tom in the sense that I have used Olympic lifts before, but only with the guys that um, are competent. And I, and I also think, it, it well, Tom alluded to it there, it goes down to the time you have with an athlete, an individual or, or a group. But Wasps, we were fortunate to have five guys. That would be at least four in the gym um, across 20 players, you know, a one-to-four ratio, one-to-five ratio, coach to player. At the moment, we've got 18 in the squad with sevens, and I'm the, I'm the only coach. And there's much more benefit to having everybody in the gym training at, at one time than there is to split the group up and spend time coaching um, <clears throat> things like Olympic lifts. So... In that scenario, I've got guys that who are competent, have had a history of Olympic lifting, who will use them. And but the majority are using simpler exercises like jump squats, um, box work, box jumps, hurdle-related uh, exercises, lots of throws. Um, after all, we're looking to stress the guys, give them a stimulus, and adapt. And you need a consistent stimulus to create an adaptation. And when you've got something so complex as an Olympic lift where there's variation in the movement and variation between reps. Um, I want to be safe in the knowledge that the guys um, that are not as competent are doing exercises that they can reduce their variability in order to create consistency in the stimulus so they get this ad adaptation. Something as simple as jump squats for me um, creates that. You can use a gym aware for some simple feedback and suddenly you've got um, a very consistent movement and a, and a great stimulus and for me I'm getting better outcomes from that. Sam, same? Um, yeah, I, 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 I agree with both of the, the guys in part, and it, I, it's quite an interesting experience for myself coming and working with the rehab guys, is that you really have to put the layers back on uh, in terms of looking at all the extensive qualities, and, and especially, you know, rugby players run, um, and so... 
you have to i at the moment spend a lot of time developing the the rhythm and the coordination of the movements and and especially the early stages uh, there are lots of extensive uh, qualities touched on like speed drill circuits extensive jump circuits and teaching teaching the boys to be able to re relax whilst doing it because obviously you know the operational demand has a bigger impact on the on the maximal demand and vice versa but if the, if the guys can't actually move well they're never going to be able to to hit high loads frequently and high high outputs frequently because they're just going to break down fatigue and their bodies are not motor programmed well enough to to keep pushing at that level so in terms of um how i would take it you know you need to be able to absorb force you need to be able to tolerate force you need to express force so a lot of the early stage stuff i do a lot of uh, eccentric loading with the boys on the back squats like long duration uh, eccentrics um and building into isometrics like simple sticking movements um stepping off a box into a stick um as they progress through and kind of take the whole development of power and break it back down according to the strength shortening cycle and the the, the neuromuscular demands uh, that that uh, that equate to to full concentric expression. Oh, get your money out, Dan. Just open that bag. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Not much in there, mate. A couple of toppers. <laughs> So another one, I think I'll, I'll come back to Dan because you mentioned it um, a little bit ago with regards to recovery. Yeah. Um, and you might be slightly different to the guys, um, but methods uh, for employing post-training, post-game recovery. Um, I'll be totally honest in terms of recovery. Again, it comes back to what's your outcome. And at the moment, again, I'm in a unique situation with extended periods between competition where we can force the guys into overreaching knowing that they've got 48 hours between a Friday and a Monday session to recover without having to play. So we won't focus on recovery so much um, in our training weeks. We're actually trying to force the adaptation. What we'll do is we'll end up having periods of, of time, especially say if we've got a, a travel point, we generally travel 10 days out from, from competition to, for uh, when we're, we're traveling long haul, then at the beginning of that week, so sort of 14 days out onwards, we'll start to introduce the recovery protocols with the lads. So when we're at a training base, it's generally uh, mobility sessions and pool sessions. And then when we get out to tournament, we'll relate our, our recovery closely to jet lag and our monitoring there. And then when we're in competition, we're usually defined by the um, equipment and the stadium facilities that we have which vary vastly from Tokyo through to, to London um, so you might have ice baths available, you might have spin bikes, you might have um, normal techs or compression uh, garments etc. There's a huge amount of variability in the protocols available to us when we travel um, so what we tend to do is give the guys options and we, we, we give them a non-negotiable situation whereby they must recover, but they have a choice in how they recover. Nutrition and sleep are our staples, obviously, and they're, they're, they're the ones they don't get to choose, but everything else they, they get to choose. Um, and we have a good group. They're very, very proactive. Um, and I think you, as a player, it's, it's very useful when a player believes in the processes they're using. So some people hate ice baths. 
and for me to force them into an ice bath is counterproductive, I believe, to their recovery, but, you know, psychological and physiological, because if they don't believe it's helping them, um, we're, we're not really going to see the signs, I don't think. So giving the guys options has worked really well for us, um, explaining to them that we think we understand they're all individuals and they all, they all respond in different ways and they have different preferences. Um, so we really put a focus on it close to competition and post-competition uh, and we make choices freely available. The one thing we do do a lot of that's as a group is pool-based pool stuff because the guys can have a lot of banter, we can play some games and that's really productive for, for the recovery as well. Tom, how does that differ for you and your younger guys? Um, we we have very little influence uh-huh. over their recovery strategies in terms of direct contact. Um, what I tend to tell them to do is to uh, to move. Uh, I think moving is the most the best way to recover. I think the, the some of the stuff around ice is a bit skeptical. I think I do agree with Dan. Anything that if they believe it's going to work, it's probably going to work. Um, but um, I think physiologically, uh, moving in terms of clearing the lymphatic vessels of the, which is they do the work in terms of clearing the waste in terms of getting them working the moving is um, the best thing you can do for that um and things like pool and or you have to go pretty tight but compression garments can help facilitate that in terms of increasing the pressure within the muscle and therefore um pushing the waste through the lymphatic vessels so um yeah, I encourage them to walk after games. Uh, some of them are encouraged to sort of spend 30 to 40 minutes walking, jog for a bit, walk again. Um, again, that feeds back into building their capacity to, to handle on feet load as well. So, um, yeah, for me, moving is the best the best form of recovery. Cool. Sam? Um, with the with the boys at the moment, uh, we work off a high-low periodization or organisation of training. So... Um, you're effectively spending a lot of time uh, working hard and a lot of time recovering as well being the nature of, of the high-low so on the low day it's, it is a, a lot about movement and i jump on the back of what um, Tom said uh, looking at uh, hitting the aerobic capacity um, for the upper body you usually do a lot of just concentric based pump bodybuilding type stuff to get a flush through, really minimize eccentric and do a lot of um, body weight work on that day as well uh, just to minimize the, the, the load on the joints um, uh, and, and a lot of pulling base work as well so the boys get a, a good pump good feel good uh, and also get a flush through also do a lot of low level core work as well so a lot of low threshold stuff which has a, a real um positive impact on increasing the core temperature so they get a good sweat on and by doing um, sort of a, a minimal amount of work but when you sort of piece the whole session together you know they've got well over an hour of com- putting together the whole three components uh, so they do get a, a decent decent hit out of it and then they're ready to come back in the next day and, and load heavy. So how would that you know what, what days would they fall on to the high low um, it it, uh, it depends on the case really because some we've got a short term turnaround. Uh, we like to keep them in the the cycle of of the week. So if the boys are back in doing their heavy upper body on a Tuesday, then they'll do their heavy upper body on a Tuesday, and we just try and marry it up as best as possible. So any 
any day that's uh, perceived to have a high stress on the central nervous system is a high day. Uh, and anything else that has more of a peripheral demand um, would be a, a low day. Uh, but on, on the extended rehabbers, you know, 12, 12 weeks, eight, you know, six to eight weeks, they try and structure them a little bit differently. So um, day, day one, so Monday will be high, Tuesday low, Wednesday high, Thursday low, Friday high, Saturday low, Sunday off. Uh, that would be a typical week. So they get lots of exposure to good quality training. So the stimulus is constantly changing, which allows for more time in cycle, less, uh, more adaptation, more recovery. And, and, you know, you don't really have to deload as often as you would in, in other certain paradigms of training. Cool. Just to touch on that again, um, regards, to, regards to recovery, compression garments, is this something you kind of encourage your guys to wear? Have you had much success in the past? Still skeptical about it? Um, I think they... Sorry, go on now. Go for it, man. Go for it. I was going like, yeah, I think um, it can it can help a little bit. I, when you look at some of the research on compression, it needs to be quite a considerable, quite a consider- pretty tight to have an effect. But uh, I'm not sure if some of the commercial stuff really fits that bill, but... It's, be- it's probably better than nothing. So I think um, if you can encourage them to stick some compression garments on f- straight after the game, uh, I know we used to encourage it with the first team, especially on coach journeys. Um, we-, we played around. What was the thing we used to do? That little car thing, Dan, we had the pump. Yeah, the fireflies. We played around things like that as well for when they was on the coach. Um, but yeah, I think it probably it's probably better than nothing. But it, in terms of real effectiveness, it probably has to be quite tight in terms of compression garments. I think I think you've got to be. We experienced this a lot, haven't we, Tom? In terms of you presenting to a bunch of lads, and, and these days athletes are pretty astute. I mean, you've got forty-four players, forty-five players. You're going to have varying opinions and varying knowledge bases, and um, research doesn't go unheard of amongst athletes as well. And let's take um, ice for example. You know, there's some research out there that says that ice is counterproductive to um, the adaptations of strength and power. Now we had players that got on the bandwagon of that and said, "Oh, it doesn't help recovery. It doesn't help uh, performance." It's like, well, you're misconstruing it here. We were using ice baths um, as a modality to help with soft tissue trauma. You know, if you if you get a knock, a bump, and a bruise, what are you going to do? You're going to put ice on it. Now, some people would disagree with it, but we we had. Um, something we believed in and we pushed the boys through it but we had to educate them in, in, to, to why we're doing it as a non-negotiable um, in terms of skins and compression garments I think that it's it's similar some people believe in it and some people don't and those guys that religiously believe in it and, and would stick by it and put them on after every session fair play to them you know they're professional in their attitude um, doesn't mean I think it's going to make a huge bit difference but it's another 1% that could help I think it's if, it, if it's something that could help, it's worth trying rather than um, knowing about it and not trying. So I think it's about offering, as a coach, it's about educating players, offering them um, a number of different resources that you think can help benefit them and allow them to make choices where possible and then just base this around what you see as your non-negotiables for, for recovery. Um, I think you can go overboard with it. So from my point of view, sticking to one or two key non-negotiables for the group and letting them have a freedom of choice for everything else works well. 
um, they feel a bit empowered then. I think that's important for the athlete as well. So there's any, any particular brands that have been good in the past? It don't count if you're affiliated to X brands either. You can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, personally, I, we haven't, uh, uh, I haven't endorsed any brands. What we do, because we travel a lot of long haul, is we've got um, some medical-grade compressions in terms of calf compressions that we wear as flight socks. So that's one of our non-negotiables. Every player has a set, and it's, they're bespoke made. So they're made for each person's dimensions and foot size etc and they are very 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 restrictive to the point I don't think you could wear them if they were long socks to the hip they're that constricted so they're very very different to the types of light impressions you get for, for recovering so I'd base my I'd hang my hat on those in terms of our recovery protocol rather than the full length skins Tom have you used uh, um, I mean I think for me in terms of ones I've tried skins seem like pretty good quality but um, in what Dan said there that sounds like the sort of thing you need to be aiming for something you know pretty tight that's going to have a, that's going to have a real effect um, rather than you know a fairly comfortable um, just like full full length leg so is that is that something you could um, you'd encourage for guys even if they weren't flying long haul yeah especially I think guys yeah. even you guys playing general um, you know like weekend rugby you are, have to drive to and from games uh, yeah can encourage it if they're sitting in the back of a car or a coach then um, I think it could be pretty useful yeah mm-hmm. do they have to be bespoke can you get them kind of off the shelf yeah you can get them off the shelf I mean you, you the classic flight socks you get in airports you know in your boots and that um, but I'd, I'd look online I'd do a bit of research and find something that's a little bit more closely linked to the, the medical grade um, because they'll have sizes available and stuff mm-hmm. cool so last but not least <clears throat> Uh, I think we've we've covered it a little bit. Um, how do you periodize your strength training, and how do you cycle? Probably the, the second bit's the key bit. Uh, how do you cycle exercises to reduce any detraining effect of movements of less priority? For me, yeah. No, no, we'll get into it. I think yeah, go for it's it. quite it's a well worded and constructed uh, question. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Don't, yeah. It's not coming from you, though, is it? No, I'm there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, in terms of strength training, I think it, I personally am, am, am lucky to be working in a group where, you know, they're excited by developing. Um, they're quite a young group, um, early 20s, the majority of them, and they're by no means uh, what I'd call mature strength-trained athletes. They're, they're still developing. So rather than periodizing forecasting for 12 months, my phases are um, loosely planned, but they're um, then written within each phase, dependent on how the individual is developing. So for guys that are accelerating in terms of their strength development and are reaching the, the KPIs that, that we've set for them as minimum standards, then they're going to progress on to more complex power bias sessions with strength maintenance in them. Um, so my periodization is defined by the progress of the individual because we're not peaking week in, week out. We're trying to peak every Saturday. We've got time to develop. Um, so I guess that we're sticking to a movement until we know that it's at a level where the residual of it, and when we step off the gas a little bit, can be maintained. Um we know that as you get stronger and more mature and you, you build up your training volume and history that, that you can hold on to those gains for a lot longer. So 
I've got guys that are just pushing strength all the time because they're young and they can deal with those demands and they're adapting all the time, but they are still way off where we need them. Um, so I wouldn't periodize them in the same way that I periodize somebody who's six, seven seasons into their sevens career and can hit um, the KPIs required in terms of strength development after having four weeks off. You know, does that does that answer the question? Yeah, it does yeah. Cool. yeah. Tom. Yeah. So um, again, it, it varies with um, who who you're working with. Um, with the the general group, say the under 18s. Um, it's, it's mostly strength bias throughout the season. I have, I'm limited in that. I have to keep it quite basic in terms of exercise difficulty because I'm relying on them to go and do the exercises on their own in school and things like that. So, um, whereas if I had closer contact with them, we might progress through, as Sam alluded to earlier, like eccentric, focused, isometric, and then to more reactive work. Um, with with most of the under eighteen guys, we're just going through simple power progressions in terms of difficulty of exercise from double leg to single leg, and um, but sticking to the main exercises like squats, um, you know, bench press, pull ups, deadlifts, Romanian deadlifts. Um, I'll, I'll sometimes cycle between different squat patterns just to expose them more from a learning standpoint than anything else to front squats. Um, we use overhead squats in our warm-ups. We don't really load too heavy on those, though. Um, but so for a bit more of a detailed example, one of the under-18s is um, moving up to the senior academy. So we've got, luckily, hopefully, it depends on his season, but he'll probably finish his games in sort of two to three weeks' time. So I'll have a nice 12-week period where I can get him ready for the senior academy. And um, he'll follow more of your block-based approach and that will have a couple of weeks to develop cardiac output um, just make general sort of hypertrophy focus it's down two weeks so then we'll have a strength um, strength power aerobic power focused moving into more speed and um, sort of a, a speed tempo um, type organization of training uh, and then into his sort of specialized period where it will be you know like conditioning based so more because he's a back rower more repeat sprints or sort of your um, short aerobic repeatability uh, anaerobic repeatability work so um that's and but in terms of exercises i, I don't i don't use too many special exercises with the guys mm-hmm. cool sam um i think i uh i fall uh, very in line with uh, with Dan and how how he would take his approach working with the injured guys. You do have extended periods of time to develop them and develop them at a rate that's individual to their specific needs, and also qualifying the exercise to their specific needs as well. Um, not so much in terms of using special exercises, but just if a guy needs to trap bar, he needs to trap bar. If he, if he needs to squat, he needs to squat. Um, and and all the der- derivatives of of those. Um, so, in terms of cycling exercises, it, it it doesn't really doesn't really hold strong with me because you know, in terms of uh, the the athletic level of these guys, they're, they're never really gonna gonna plateau at each lift if you manipulate the variables carefully and 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 do all your work around that movement in terms of your programming and what you're trying to reach with the athlete, you know, you're never going to spend too long um, on those movements anyway. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. 
I think that, that you've got to remember that um, you've got to look at the training system as a whole as well. And just because I'm not doing an RDL doesn't mean that I can't stress the guy's hamstring conditioning on the field with some sleds and some speed training, etc. So there's also knowing the stress from the whole training system and understand that you know if, you, if your coaches are doing certain drills or certain modalities of training where we're doing conditioned games maybe and there's a lot of open high-speed running you may have to it may be safer to come away from some of the extra hamstring work that you might plan in your gym sessions because you know you're going to get a high load of stress there when you're running um, and I'd also say that Classically, you go through university and education, learning about periodization, and everyone links it back to Tudor bumpers of uh, textbooks of old. And I think that if you were to stick on that model and think, right, we have to peak for competition in this way with all these qualities, and we must finish our general prep here, and we must start a specific prep here, then somebody's having a shortfall, okay, in your group in team sports scenario because everyone is at a different point of their development. Um, and they all accelerate at different rates as well, and they all respond in different ways. So I think it's really important to know your individuals, um, plan for, for individuals as well as the group um, in terms of how you periodise the work you're doing. Very interesting. Cool. I mean, I've kept you for 50 minutes now, so I'll do a little, just get you to round up a little bit. Um, last but not least, where can guys find you on social media? Where can... People get in touch with what you're doing and, and find out that. Sam? Um, uh, social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm just trying to look up my handle. I can't even remember it. If you search Sportland there, TNF. Sportland TNF. So Sportland <laughs> underscore TNF uh, is my Twitter. Um, and email sam.portland at wasps.co.uk. Um, and if you email me, just pester me. Because I will eventually reply. Like I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Dan? Yeah, for me, I'm on Twitter. I'm uh, at Howells Dan. Um, I'm not as fruitful as some of the tweeters out there. I tend to just use it as a, a real nice way to keep uh, keep up to date with some of the current research, to be honest, and, and see what other guys post and jump on that bandwagon in terms of just having a look at some of the latest work. But that's where you can find me. Um, and email danhowles at rfu.com is the simplest way to get hold of me. And I'll let you know the other Dan Howells that I've added on tonight. <laughs> I'll let you know how he's going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tom? Uh, I'm not actually on Twitter, um, not tweet yet. I uh, probably should because I'm probably missing out on some of the, the research that gets banded about. I do tend to come across, people tend to send lots to me as well, which is quite useful. But yeah, I'm not on there yet. So um, I, I have uh, got a website. I'm in the process of um, setting up and I should be you know, getting a little bit more info on there. But uh, that's uh, Arete, which is A-R-E-T-E hyphen performance.com. Um, and you can email me on there at info at aret-performance.com. So, say again. A-R-E-T-E. So, um, it comes from ancient Greece. It means to live up to your highest potential. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Cool. Did you nick, did you nick that off? I've read it in a book a long time ago. So I tried <laughs> to hold on to it. Didn't tell anyone about it in case they nicked it. <laughs> No, that's cool. I'll, um, so when, when's that When's that going to be going live, Tom? It's live. It's live. It's, it's okay. just in terms of content, there's very little on there. So, But you can you, um, you can reach me through that email or just on the uh, contact 
section. Cool. I'll put a um, I'll put a link on the site for it as well. Perfect, isn't it? Let's go. Um, and yeah, just thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Oh, for thank you for having us. Giving uh, giving an hour on a on a Wednesday night. And no I will um, I'll speak to you all soon. Nice one. Cool. Cheers, thanks thank a lot. you. Cheers, Cheers thanks, well. Thanks for tuning in to episode 31 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Tom, Sam and Dan. After the feedback I got from the football special edition, I'm going to try to sort out a couple of others, uh, for different topics, maybe an extreme sport one uh, and a couple of others that I'm thinking about. So if you've got any recommendations, please feel free to fire them over. Just a reminder, you can check out everything that's going on the podcast over at paceyperformance.co.uk. You can now listen on iTunes, YouTube and Stitcher and I will speak to you in episode 32.